Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back everybody. Almost Sideways Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, on this very special episode as we are going to go about as mainstream as we possibly could and then go about as niche cult classic as we possibly could uh, because it's movies and we love movies no matter what they are. Uh, I am your host, Terry Plucknett. Uh, joining me as always are Todd Plucknett and Zach Saltz. Uh, Zach, what are you drinking this fine evening? I'm drinking some fabulous... Uh, Costco Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, this giant bottle was only $7.99, and <laughs> it's the equivalent of two wines in one for half the price. Do the math on that. I mean, it, it, it says Kirkland Signatures on it, so you know it's good. Kirkland, Washington, baby. Birthplace of rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing says quality like, like generic Costco brand. Uh, Todd, what are you drinking? I am drinking a barrel-aged Innocent Gun, the original, bourbon barrel scotch ale. And uh, it's pretty nice. Uh, it's like a good red uh, red amber ale or something like that. It's it's smooth. And it's not 11.2%. It is 11.2 fluid ounces. 6.6%. I made that mistake earlier. Okay, okay. Quaffable. Sounds yeah. like <laughs> Well, far from transcendent, for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, well, I'm going to give a uh, a shout out to uh, to one of our our buddies from college, uh, Mr. Matt Gertzen, who I know is listening out there because my beer this uh, this time is from Bale Breaker Brewing Company, out of Moxie, Washington, which is in the Yakima Valley. Uh, I am drinking their Leota May IPA. Uh, and it's a it's a solid brew. It's a solid one. I went with the one with the girl's name since we're gonna be talking about some uh, uh, some stuff later on as we get into uh, as we get into our deep dive. Uh, so, cheers, guys, and let's hop into let's hop into our movie review. All right, for today we are reviewing the biggest film ever possibly in terms of box office numbers 350 million opening weekend uh domestically 1.2 billion worldwide this is like insane numbers that have never even been thought of before and we're going to talk about what we thought of it and so to start this off we're going to go to the least uh the the lowest on the totem pole when it comes to uh mcu fandom uh, Zach, tell us about Avengers Endgame. I keep telling everybody they should move on. Some do, but not us. And what you thought of it. We're going to start with uh, some like spoiler-free reviewing here, and it might get into some spoilers. We'll warn you if it does. But Zach, tell us about Avengers Endgame. All right. Well, thanks for the setup as the lowest on the totem pole. That boosts my confidence right there. Um, dude, dude, that's self-proclaimed, man. I guess that's true. <laughs> I'm an MCU hater and proud of it. 
Um, Except that you like the ones that suck, like Black Panther and Captain Marvel. That is true. I, I was, you know, a, a fan <laughs> of Captain Marvel, but only because I wanted to uh, annoy the trolls. Um, okay, so Avengers Endgame is uh, the final MCU film. Yeah, right, like anyone actually believes that. I certainly don't. But it's the follow-up to Avengers Infinity War and is the 22nd film in the epic Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, just out of curiosity, have both of you seen all of the MCU films? Yes. Unfortunately, yeah. I slept through the uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp, but yeah. yeah. Wow. That's... Oh, I liked Ant-Man and the Wasp. That's of impressive. <laughs> I think I've seen somewhere between maybe four and 11 MCU films based on <laughs> like how you qualify. That's a huge difference. As- based on how you qualify falling asleep and not caring and going on my cell phone. Um, yeah. <laughs> So, uh, I really have not been a fan of the Avengers films in particular. Um, I couldn't make it through the first 30 minutes of Avengers Infinity War. So, I actually, I went into Endgame really not knowing um, what the setup was. Um, I just knew that, I guess, half the population had died because Thanos uh, killed them because of some strange belief in population control. At least that's the way that my wife described it to me. Um, so I guess that was kind of cool. One of my complaints about the Marvel movies is that no one ever really dies. So I actually tried to watch Infinity War and uh, couldn't make it through. Anyway, long story short, went into this movie uh, with, with very little knowledge of the Avengers world, um, except a hatred of it. And uh, I have to say, for a three-hour movie that uh, I had no interest in, that was overbloated, and as I proclaimed on a couple podcasts ago, for a film franchise that I believe is destroying the state of cinema, um, I have to say I was fairly impressed by Avengers Endgame. I only fell asleep twice. Uh, Both times were in the opening 45 minutes. Um, I guess we'll kind of delve into spoilers a little bit. I think when they do the five years later... Uh, launch into the future. I found those scenes really boring and uninteresting, and I, I don't know what, what happened in them. I woke up around the time when the two kids are taking selfies next to Hulk. Uh, anyway, but from there on, uh, I actually found the movie kind of interesting. Um, I, 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 liked, uh, that, I liked that it was goofier than I was anticipating. Um, I, you know, one of the MCU movies I really like is Thor Ragnarok because it has a kind of goofiness to it. And uh, same with Spider-Man Homecoming. I think the overly serious Marvel movies are the ones that tend to suck more. And this movie, somewhat surprisingly, given that it's the final movie, actually had a lot of humor in it and really kind of went for broke with the last, particularly with the character uh, of Thor, who does, you know, his best impersonation of the Big Lebowski. Um, and uh, the plot is ridiculous. Um you know, involves searching for those stones or whatever. I mean, you really don't need to be a fan of the movie. See, I I don't know. I feel like there's two strands to review this movie. You could do it from a total fandom perspective, and you could do it from the layperson perspective, sort of how some people are reviewing the final season of Game of Thrones. Um, I'm definitely a layperson, but I will say, uh, in defense of the film, it was three hours long. I only fell asleep twice, and both times were in the first 45 minutes. Um, I found it pretty engaging. I liked that when you got bored with certain characters, it moved 
pretty quickly onto other characters. Like, for example, I cannot stand, in particular, Hawkeye and Black Widow. I think those two characters are extremely obnoxious and annoying. And any time that they had scenes featuring them in this movie, um, you know, they, they went pretty quickly onto more interesting stuff. I also personally get bugged any time that the MCU shows scenes with Tony, uh, Tony Stark in his uh, Iron Man suit. Like, the whole, like, shot of Robert Downey Jr. talking through his suit. I just, that, that really irrationally bothers me. I don't know why. Um, they didn't do a whole lot of that in this movie. There aren't even a whole lot of battle scenes in this movie. Um, gosh, I guess we're kind of getting into spoilers here, but I, I guess I'm just saying the things I like about it. Um, I liked that the audience was into it. You know, they were clapping um, and uh, they were sobbing um, at various points. And, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know what, what more there is to say about it. Um, it, 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 it was fine. It was not terrible. It wasn't great. It was a good send-off to the MCU. I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm giving it three stars. Twice in the last month, I'm giving thumbs up to an MCU movie. What is happening? Maybe I'm just happy that the series is ending. So. Okay, well, uh, so first off, uh, bravo for attempting to avoid spoilers. This is kind of a movie that, uh, with what was known about it leading into it, it's, it's kind of a movie that if you talk about any plot points at all, you're spoiling the movie. Um, or spoil, you can spoil parts of it. Uh, second, no one is claiming that this is the last MCU movie. Um, this is the last in this phase. It's the last in what they're calling the Infinity Saga. Uh, in fact, the next, uh, the next MCU movie is actually scheduled to come out, I think, in June or July. It's the new Spider-Man movie. Um, so it's not the end of the MCU. It's well, just the, the end the, of this the part of it. The Avengers, right? I mean... It's not even the end of the Avengers. It's, no, just, it's just kind the of the end of this... Yeah, this the phase first group of, the of Avengers. Avengers. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, keep those anyways, checks coming in. Exactly. Well, when those checks are $1.2 billion, I don't blame them. In three days. Um, over three days. Gosh. But uh, so I will say, I have no idea where these people are because I watched it in a theater on opening day at noon with five people. What? No way. Five I'm, people. I'm calling bullshit on Are that. Are you kidding me? Ask ask my buddy Josh Ackerman. Like we walked in, we bought we walked in an hour early and there was two people in there and then like uh three other people trickled in and there were five people there. At the wow. mall in Puyallup, Washington. Five people. I watched it on Sunday afternoon um at a theater that is rarely packed with a packed house yeah um i had to wait in line we had to get tickets two hours in advance and we waited for an hour in line we bought our tickets like three days early not knowing because it was not it was not assigned seating at this place so we didn't know so we got our tickets and we were happy and we walked in an hour early and yeah we watched it with five people well, that's because didn't this make like 61 million on thursday night Probably. something like that Anyways, so, um, talking about, uh, Endgame here, I, I don't think this was a perfect movie by any means. There were a lot of flaws in it, a lot of, a lot of issues I had with it. However, with that said, I think this was about as perfect of an ending to this saga and tied it up in a, in a nice bow as nicely as it could have. Um, I, I'm... A sucker for nostalgia this is about as nostalgic of a movie as you could possibly get as it as it paid homage to the last 11 years of marvel films uh in this three-hour epic 
Um, one of the problems I had with Infinity War is it felt like it was jumping between so many characters way too often. This uh, this didn't feel like it was just trying to fit everybody in. Everything felt like it happened at the right pace. Um, I I really enjoyed it. Um, it's a three-hour movie with very few downtimes. I mean, I, I could see, Zach, what, what you mentioned about that one spot, there being a little bit of a lull, but that that is like the only lull in the entire movie, and it's a three-hour movie, a three-hour superhero movie. That is impressive. Um, so yeah, like I said, it's not a... It, it, I would probably be giving this movie three stars, but since it was able to do what was thought to be impossible and wrap up 11 years and 21 films in one... Uh, in one epic, epic three-hour uh, movie, this was about as good as I could have possibly hoped for. I'm giving it three and a half stars. Todd, what'd you think? All right. So the Russo brothers, who are the esteemed directors of Yumi and Dupree, but they also did make the best, <laughs> the best uh, MCU movie, which is Winter Soldier. Uh, they said that uh, three hours was the shortest they could possibly have made it, but there were like two to three minutes of every single scene that I thought could have been cut out. This is like the Dark Knight Rises of the MCU. Like, remember, everyone loved it at the time, but everyone looks back on it and like, yeah, the movie really did suck, and that's really what I think about this movie. Uh, there are too many characters. Uh, we don't really care about any of them because they don't have enough time, but at the same time, we the movie needed to be shorter and longer at the same time. It's a really bad combination. Uh... I don't know. I guess I'll get into some spoilers type stuff here. Uh, Do it. All I right, think spoiler the, alert. Spoiler alert. Here you go. Okay, like, the Forever Green banner thing is just stupid. He looked obnoxious, and it was distracting, And but at the same time, somehow, like, the dude or, like, fat drunk Thor uh, and the raccoon were the best part of the movie, even though it was a pretty Agreed. dumb idea, and they walked in from another movie, obviously, pretty much, uh, and, like, I don't know. I, I didn't think the emotional connection with these characters really worked. Like, I mean, I felt like when I was watching Star Trek for the first time and when uh, Leonard Nimoy says to Zachary Quinto, live long and prosper, I, I, w I thought to myself, if I cared about the about this series, like, I probably would be catching the feels, but I'm, but I, but I'm not going to because I don't. I don't know. The movie's just really dumb. Like, I mean, it's got, like, convoluted time travel rules. Uh, it references Hot Tub Time Machine, and Captain America admires his own ass. Like, I, I don't know. And, and then they're, they're, like, going for Tony Stark's kid cursing for laughs. Like, what is this? I mean, it's not Jerry Maguire. Like, what what the hell are we doing here? It, it, it really just annoyed me. And, and, like, dug themselves into a hole with Infinity War, where, like, yeah, we're gonna kill half the world. And they were like, well, we need to get out of this somehow. But uh, we didn't show Ant-Man. What happened to him? Uh, let's just, like, make up a, a, some other realm that he's in, and uh, we'll use our scientists to invent time travel. Isn't that awesome? It'll solve everything, but we're not just going to do it easy and murder Thanos before he was born. We're going to, like, we're going to, like, create a Zelda game out of it or something. They'll eat it up, and they did for $1.2 billion. Uh... I don't know, there's, like, there were some good things, it has some well-shot scenes and stuff, the Russo brothers are talented filmmakers, but, I don't know, the, the actors were kind of phoning it in most of the time, and it was just really just sort of goofy and dumb, uh, and they were like, I don't know, I don't think replaying scenes from other movies from a different perspective is really all that creative at the same time, I, I think the movie needed an editor 
or an intermission. It's 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 hard to sit through. It's a two star movie, and if it actually is the end of the game, then we should all be so lucky. So you're saying that the flashback scenes were from different movies in the MCU? I did yeah. not realize that. Every single every single flashback was from a different MCU movie. So like when Hulk is looking at himself smash a car, that was from that was from the first Avengers. The first Avengers. That okay. roof scene yep. with Tilda Swinton was from Doctor Strange. Actually, yeah. not that actually wasn't because that was like Tilda was Swinton's part, character. I remember that. No, that was Tilda that, Swinton's character in, like, what she was doing during the Avengers. During the attack of I remember the, that the Battle rooftop, of New York. Though. Well, yeah, that rooftop is in Doctor Strange, but that well, moment is not in Doctor well, Strange. Obviously, she's not talking to, like, Forever Green. <laughs> at the time, you know, I, I hear they're they're calling him Professor Hulk. Yeah. Anyways, uh, I dude, I I think you're completely off base here, man. I I don't agree with anything that you just said. Um. Well, you, no. You like right, here, here's, you like them making up their own time travel rules so that okay, we so we don't question thing, it. The one thing, like I said, it's not a perfect movie, and the one thing. That's a little weird. Is the time travel rules the the, that, the thing that holds the whole movie together? Is, yeah, yeah, is the one yeah. thing that doesn't work. Okay, gotcha. It, it's so, and I, I've been I've been reading up on this a little bit, and it's like, okay, what exactly do these time travel rules mean? And it's like, you can't alter the present by going into the past. What you end up doing is creating a parallel universe where this other reality happens. Right. So it doesn't make any sense that old Cap is there in the present because that he that is the that is the one loophole in the whole thing. Yeah. That doesn't the the last yes the last like five minutes of the movie make no sense. However, and still it's I a three and a half star movie apparently. And I don't care. And I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. Because, uh, like, like we were saying, there, there's, there's the objective, like, out of the, out of the loop, review, and then there's the fan review. I am the biggest fan out of the three of us of the MCU, and as a fan of it, I, I had to eat up everything that was going on, because it was, uh, it was that good. Can you pour a little softer there, uh, Zach? I'd be more I mean, wine dude. after this review. <laughs> But uh, but no, it was it. I I had I just loved every minute of it because it was everything it was doing. Yeah, it was a it was going for for the feels a little bit, but it was going for for it in such a in such a great way. I Infinity I, War I is so it. much better at that though. Infinity War is so dark and it works. This movie does not work because it's so stupid at the same time. <sighs> I, I guess it I guess it all hinges on how much you the 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 flaws in the movie bother you. The flaws in the movie don't bother me at all because what it does well it does so I'm so you, well. You will look back on this movie as The Dark Knight Rises and you'll realize that yeah, this movie really isn't any good. We just thought okay, it was but, because it r- wraps everything together and there are too many characters that we couldn't really understand it at the time. Yeah. But but the difference is the Dark Knight Rises I went in with all these expectations to, and I kind of hated The Dark Knight Rises off the bat. I no, was not. I a was huge one that gave it two it. stars. You gave it three and a half. I think stars I gave still. it no. I think I gave it three. I was not. I was underwhelmed by The Dark Knight Rises. Um, 
but I wasn't I wasn't gonna say it was a bad movie. I, but I was underwhelmed. This nothing about this movie left me underwhelmed. But I thought you. But Terry, you said that there were flaws in it, though. Yeah, it's a flawed you movie. You were underwhelmed but by the, also... the structure of the plot and the ending, but nothing underwhelmed you, apparently. <laughs> That's what I'm going with. That's good, Matt. <laughs> but no, if, no, like if... there, there, like I said, there, there are there are some flaws. There are flaws in every movie. I'm not saying it's a four star movie, but I'm saying what it did well. It did extremely well, and I'm gonna overlook a couple. Uh, a couple things that were that a couple suspensions of disbelief to make the plot work, uh, to make it a, uh, if that's what it took to bring about the product that it had. Did it need to be three hours long? It either needed to be two hours or it needed to be like four parts. I was gonna say it, that that would have been a better way to do it is make it another movie. I would agree. Is, is, yeah, I would agree with you, Todd, that I found Tony Stark's daughter really annoying in this movie, and it's depressing that um, his, you know, final uh, plea into the world is a reminder of who his daughter is. She's pretty annoying. Yeah. And I, I also have some questions, too. Where was Natalie Portman in this movie? Where was Michelle Pfeiffer in this movie? And where was Rene Russo? Because yeah. they were in the end credits. Well, like Dude, okay, <laughs> they all had like half, like half of like a scene, pretty much. You, you, all right, they so showed you up. Mu- you must Nelly have fallen Portman asleep woke up at some point. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I, was about the, it. I, I honestly don't know if she actually was ever on set for this movie because it could have all been done through archival footage from the Dark World. Um, but yeah, there was that. Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer was in the fi- like one of those final scenes, the funeral scene, um, and then uh, who was the other one you asked about? Rene oh, Russo. Rene Russo is Thor's mom. Oh, they, ha- they have a scene together. Oh, uh, okay. No, I, I, okay, I remember that now. And 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 the credits, the credits just kind of go through like every character from any of the twenty-two movies because pretty much every character from all twenty-two movies show up in this movie. Except for one. Okay. The, the, this was the one... The, the one character that didn't show back up? Kate Vision. Oh. Vision never popped up in this movie. Well, you mentioned on this podcast, Terry, that you don't like Vision very much. Yeah. He's not my favorite. Also, I think the CGI like on Michael Douglas making him young was pretty bad. Like It did not look anything like young Michael Douglas. <laughs> Well, and young okay. John Slattery was distracting. It like <laughs> him without white hair is absolutely atrocious. <laughs> okay, okay, this was something I thought was kind of interesting. I thought it was a fascinating choice to go with John Slattery as Howard Stark instead of Dominic Cooper. I would have gone Dominic oh. Cooper because that's who played him in First Avenger. What about Robert Downey Sr. as he is in the movie that we will be talking about imminently? Well, that that would have been interesting. I mean, that he's still alive. Yeah, that would have but been he never... awesome. But the Russo brothers have probably never seen a Robert Downey Senior movie. So, are they related to Rene Russo? I was wondering that too. I wasn't That's until a great just question. now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, well, let's let's uh, let's wrap up Endgame here. Uh, I'm giving it three and a half stars, saying it's a great ending to the to the saga. 
and wrapping everything up. Zach, as a completely unbiased, uh, well, no, uninformed. he's actually sli- un- uninformed. <laughs> That's the word yet you're still for. biased against it. He's giving it three stars. And Todd is saying it's one of the worst films of the MCU and giving it two stars. Well, I mean, that doesn't necessarily make it one of the worst. It's not as bad as Captain Marvel, for sure. This is, like, maybe the sixth or seventh worst, which, I mean, it's in the bottom fourth, but I guess that makes it one of the worst. I don't know. What, what, do, you, what do you say is the worst? Oh, Thor. Yeah, okay. Okay, we're still in agreement that Thor is the worst. Well, who's the MVP of this movie, though? Isn't it Thor in, in Avengers Endgame? He has to yeah. be the MVP. I've Even never you liked admitted, Thor. Todd, Exactly. I've never liked the, yeah, he's, I mean, he's charming in this movie. I know, and I've, I've, I, I don't really like the Guardians, but I mean, yeah, the, the raccoon and Thor was the best part of the movie. <laughs> they were Absolutely. just like hanging out bullshitting, but they didn't belong in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Thor kind of bugged me in this movie. What? <laughs> Thor was the best part of the movie. Of a movie that the, you liked. Me and the five people I watched it with disagree with you, Terry. <laughs> I don't know. It, it was such it was such an anti Thor way that his character went that I Yeah, I don't, I don't understand why he's so broken up about chopping Thanos' head off because like I mean, he's killed so many people. Why is this one guy who killed half the world really gonna he's, bother him that he's much? He's broken up because he didn't do it right the first time. He didn't go for the head the first time. That's the problem. I don't. I don't know. I don't think that's so. what it's all about. So he thought doing it right the second time was going to solve everything, and it didn't. And by the he way, he knew he was the one that could fix it all, and didn't. So I said during my Captain Marvel review that uh, all that's going to happen is she's going to come in and kill Thanos, which they weren't going to do that until she showed up. She was there for like five minutes, and then she was gone, like the rest of the movie. I I, I don't understand that that strategy because and black panther was hardly on screen either and these are the ones that they want to hype up to be the the head of the new of the new mcu or whatever and uh they just like completely abandoned them (laughs) well well i did think it was interesting that captain marvel was very close to killing thanos at the end of the movie and you wonder if some studio head honcho came in there and said uh you know what let's not offend the trolls we need them as audience uh let's uh maybe have uh you know iron man do it I also no, think I, Thanos essentially became John Doe. He like he's like this is my destiny. I'm surprised he didn't say go ahead become Wrath, you know. <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking there. That scene, I was like, wow, originality. Uh, I loved it. <laughs> of course, that's all, I, that's all I can say. Cheers. I, well, we were, we were debating before this episode whether you'd give it four stars or three and a half stars, Terry. But I said you li- you gave four stars to Avengers. I thought you definitely liked this one more. But no, first Avengers is still the best movie in the MCU. No, the first wow. Avenger, not the first Avengers. <laughs> no, Avengers, like the first Avengers film, is the best movie in the MCU. Is it bad no, that I I, I didn't know that Captain America and the Winter Soldier were different people? <laughs> Well, they, uh, I guess don't talk the, like that supposedly... in one country. It makes you look like a dumb shit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> supposedly, Winter Soldier is supposed to become Captain America, but uh, in the comics, that's what uh, Adam Daly said to me. I know, but he gave his shield to Sam. That's one. That's one thing that bugged me at the end too. I didn't he was bug me. To give... I was just like, oh, okay. No, but Bucky's supposed to be the new Captain America. And he gave it to Sam instead. He doesn't have as nice of an ass, I guess. I, I, apparently not. It's apparently not America's not. ass. 
And and the other thing the other thing I didn't like is when he came back he he left Mjolnir in the in the past Thor's hammer. Now because now it's gone again. And whatever happened to Loki? Loki disappeared in this movie. Loki Loki all right so this is the one thing that they were saying or I was reading about it today kind of doing some some internet diving. I said okay the two loopholes in this whole movie are how does Captain America show up old at the end? Uh, if he's if that happened in a parallel universe, and what what happened with Loki? Loki w- teleported with the with the Tesseract and went and caused all sorts of mischief, and they're like, oh oh well, we'll just go steal it from another another place and left it completely alone and never came back to it. Because time travel is so creative. That's just such the best way to handle the situation. <laughs> Not with emotion or anything, but with, uh, we're going to make up our own rules, which apparently they didn't because two people have told me they stole the time travel rules from Dragon Ball Z, which that shows you <laughs> the level of intellect in this movie making. Alright. <laughs> uh, Alright, all we're moving on. Todd gave it two, Zach gave it three, I gave it three and a half. Um, chances are you've already seen it, you've uh, you've made your decision on, on what you think of it. Uh, but now you know what we think of it. Okay. Moving into our favorite feature, Deep Dive of the Week. And this one is, uh, like I said, about as, uh, as cult classic as you get, as we are going to be looking at uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's classic 1997 film, Boogie Nights. New Line Cinema presents a portrait of two decades in the life of a business, the days of a dreamer, and the nights in between. Boogie Nights a little bit about Boogie Nights and why we're uh, talking about it. Uh, well, we're talking about Boogie Nights because Zach wanted us to, and uh, I <laughs> definitely the biggest fan of the movie out of us. Uh, it is directed by Paul Thomas Anderson and written by Paul Thomas Anderson. Nominated for three Academy Awards, it is about a kid named Eddie who uh, has a giant penis and... Uh, <laughs> He uh, is discovered at a nightclub by Jack Horner, played by Burt Reynolds, uh, in an Oscar-nominated role, and uh, he sort of like lures him into the uh, California pornography industry uh, in uh, 1977, and uh, it's about his sort of rise and fall in the industry, and uh, yeah, it's a uh, it's an awesome movie, a uh, lot of laughs, a lot of uh, really disturbing moments, but. Uh, I, I personally have it in my top 100 of all time. I, I, what, all right. what was the, when was the first time you guys saw this movie? Because, like, for me, like, I, I was looking forever. Like, I used to go to the pawn shop to buy DVDs all the time. And I was waiting to find the, the two-disc edition of, of, of the movie. I knew it had an orange cover. And it was, like, I, I would go, like, basically every week for about two years. And then one time, I finally found it. And I... I and I, I like right. It was like right when I was checking out, and I was like, "I'm getting it now." And uh, yeah, so that was the first time I saw it, probably a good 14 years ago. <laughs> what a pathetic loser! I know that was one of the highlights <laughs> of my young adult life at the time. Yeah. Uh. So Zach, what? Uh, when did uh when did Boogie Nights come around for you? 
All right, well, I saw Boogie Nights in high school. I remember seeing it on VHS. Uh, that's how old this is. Um, I believe it was. I believe that it was not my first uh, Paul Thomas Anderson film. Uh, I believe the first Paul Thomas Anderson film I saw was Magnolia. Um, but I think I saw this movie right after Magnolia came out, and then I think that was around the same time The Punch Drunk Love came out. Um, for a while, Magnolia was a top 10 all-time movie for me. It is not anymore, and perhaps we'll talk a little bit more about Paul Thomas Anderson's filmography later in this podcast. Um, so when I saw Boogie Nights, I had super high expectations for it, and it was a disappointment when I first saw it. I felt like it was way too goofy. Um, I, you know, one of the things I really liked about Magnolia was just how serious it was and uh, how depressing it was because I like depressing movies. And this movie was way too sunny and energetic and happy. Um, and uh, it was something I just didn't like about it. Um, since then, I don't know, I've had an uh, interesting history with it. I guess it's kind of similar to uh, what I'd said about our episode on Almost Famous. I, that I know a lot of people who love the movie, um, including Todd. Um, I respect their opinion about their love of the movie, and I think there are some awesome aspects to it, but I've never been someone who's loved this movie. Um, as Todd said, I did recommend that we talk about it, though, because, well, number one, if our, our unofficial rule with our deep dives is it has to be a movie that is set in the 70s, because this is our third straight movie that was <laughs> set in the 70s, that was made, uh, you know, 20 plus years after the 70s ended. And um, I think it's like fundamentally kind of a stupid movie, like it, it, it but, but goofy and stupid at the same time. And it takes itself too seriously. Um, and there are people who also take it too seriously, like Todd. But that doesn't necessarily make it a bad movie. And, uh, you know, Ebert had it like number four of 1997. Some people call it one of the best movies of the 1990s. And it, it clearly has its roots in Tarantino and Scorsese. So I don't know. I've had an interesting hi history with it. Watching it again these last couple days, I don't think my mind has changed too much. But there are a lot of interesting scenes and characters in the movie. And I think it's, it's certainly fun to talk about. I just I don't know if it's truly a great movie. <clears throat> So the first time I watched this movie, I think was the first time Todd watched this movie. I think we watched it the first time together. Um, and I have no idea when that was. Probably sometime, I'm going to say like around 2004, 2005 maybe? That's what I said 14 years ago, about. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I have it as a three and a half star movie, but I can honestly say I don't didn't really remember much about it. And I don't think I had seen it since. Uh, so I watched this uh, again a couple nights ago, and um, and I I enjoyed it. It was uh, I think I'd still keep it at that three and a half star. One of the things I really liked about it is how it's this movie. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's seventies porn industry, but I almost wish it wasn't because that distracts it from like what makes this movie great and what makes it great are these these fascinating characters and these amazing performances from this huge ensemble cast. And I think, um, and we'll probably talk a little bit, like Zach said, about Paul Thomas Anderson, but we talked about him a little bit on the last podcast when I reviewed The Master. And um, he does a great job of putting together these actor showcases, but when he's at his best is when he has the huge ensemble that can play in his, uh, in his film like in Boogie Nights and Magnolia. But when he when he limits his cast in something like The Master, it, it 
it comes up a little short. But I, I, I was I was fascinated by some of the minor characters, some of the some of the ensemble guys, and uh, and what they were able to bring to the table in the few scenes that they had. It showed just how quality this cast was and how they all really turned into stars. Yeah, and, and something I forgot to mention is one of the things that I've always kind of held a little bit against this movie is I don't really understand why critics love this movie and why it got nominated for an Oscar and it was on all these top ten lists and why so many people shit on Showgirls. Like, it's not that fundamentally different of a movie than Showgirls. And I kind of think quietly that Showgirls might be a better movie, um, but... I just don't understand why there's, like, one set of standards for one movie, because, you know, it's Paul Thomas Anderson, oh, God forbid, and then, like, Showgirls, everyone's like, oh, this movie sucks, and it's awful, like, I mean, come on, give me a break, so I think that unfairly clouds my judgment about Boogie Nights, so I'm gonna try my best in this segment to, like, review it on its own merits. Well, I, well I that's honestly saw Showgirls... Hold on. So that, that it's because Showgirls sucks and is awful. Hey, hey, hey! Now and this you know, movie, Jacques Rivet no, th- loves Showgirls. Okay, okay. Ding, ding. Okay, okay. Well, <laughs> it also had like Showgirls has really bad performances too, and it, it did not get rid of its NC seventeen rating, unlike this movie. But the one movie I thought I thought I thought Walk Hard own, honestly owns owes a lot to this movie because I feel like it's almost the same story, <laughs> just about a singer instead of a pornographer. <laughs> Oh, that's funny. No, I, I think I think the the difference is Showgirls tries to be about the industry with bad characters, and this is about the characters that just happen to be in this industry. That is the primary difference between Showgirls and Boogie Nights. That's deep. Yeah, that was nicely done. All right, so let, let's let's get into actually talking about this movie. So we we, we set up what it what it's about. We uh, we we've got we've got a. Uh, Dirk Diggler, played by Mark Wahlberg. We've got this huge ensemble cast. Uh, what, where are we going to first? What category are we talking about first? We usually, we've been starting with highest war performance. Is that where we want to go first? I think that's a great place to sure. start. Okay. By the way, Zach, it's war, not war. Got okay? it. it, it <laughs> it's war. Not, it doesn't rhyme with, like, film noir. It's not war. It's war. I may have been listening to one of our podcasts today where you talk about the highest war performance. Uh, yeah. It's how yeah. we pronounce it here in Kansas. Yeah. I, I'd, I'd say another quote again, but I'm going to refrain myself. Um, let's go to Todd first. Todd, highest war performance from Boogie Nights. Okay, there are three the three people that I think definitely qualify for this. One is uh, is, is Mark Wahlberg because like this is my favorite era of Marky Mark. Uh, you know the Basketball Diaries, Three Kings, that, that era. I mean, th- this is him in his like absolute element doing what he does. <laughs> I named one of my fantasy football teams after his character, Brock Landers, which is his character within a character. And uh, it's, uh, I mean, I think his performance is extraordinary. It's definitely his best performance ever. And, uh, but so that's one that could be, another one is Don Cheadle, because that's another character I can't really see by being played by basically any other actor. He's like the, the Jesse Pinkman of the movie. Like He's like our sort of like audience sit-in at times, and we like root for him, and he sort of has a happy ending. But I think 
the one that definitely has to be is John C. Riley because I I, can, I mean the role had to be written for him. Like Reed Rothschild is one of my all-time favorite characters. Every time he's on <laughs> on screen, you just like smile and just like you want to hear everything he says, even though he's sort of like muttering everything. He's he's a John C. Riley is a genius, and I this is a role that I honestly would never have want anybody else to touch. If we recast it, I would have put him in it again. That's a good call. That's a good call. I, I, one thing that I find interesting is John C. Riley then looks exactly the same as John C. Riley now, just plus like fifty pounds. Yep. Mm-hmm. That, that's that's pretty. But I mean, he, he looks exactly the same. Um. All right, Zach. Highest war. So it's called war, by the way, Terry. I, oh, okay. I looked it up in a okay. dictionary. And uh, okay. Um, you got to remember that the definition of war is not necessarily like the best performance. It is wins above replacement. So we're talking again for you uninformed viewers out there um, or listeners, I should say. Are you saying uh, I didn't follow the rules? Uh, well, I I think you named three really good performances. However, I could see could they other be actors. Replaced? Who? I think so. Well, who for, could play example, John C. Riley's role? I think plenty of people could play John C. Riley's role. Give me role. one. Um, I think Bruce Willis could have done it. I think no. maybe, maybe he would have been too old in 1997, but but in mid 80s, Bruce Willis would have nailed that role. Um, I think uh, well, maybe I'll get back to you. That would have been the highest of the three you mentioned. But I think I you know a lot of people have talked about how Leonardo DiCaprio was initially cast as Dirk Diggler, and I could absolutely see that. I I think he could have really nailed that role as well. He wouldn't but have been again, as whiny though. That's not to demean Marky Mark. He's really good in the movie, but I, I don't know. When I think about war performances, I tend to drift toward those performances that I cannot imagine anyone else in, and I'm going to have to pull this again, just like we did in Almost Famous. I gotta go my man Phil Hoffman here. What's no, the matter with I you? I forget it. I'm, just, I'm really drunk. Really, I am. I'm, just, I'm, I'm out of my head. I'm so wait. I'm really wasted. Really, Dirk, yeah, I'm really just wasted. That. I'm crazy right now. I'm, I'm really crazy. Do you want to go yeah. back inside? Uh, do you like my car? I mean, who else could play Scotty J? Who else could have that emotional fra- frailty and fragility in the movie and that ridiculous look and the hairdo? I mean, I think the, the best moment of pure acting in this movie might be at, at uh, Becky's wedding when uh, Scotty eats the whole piece of cake. He cuts like a fifth of the cake and stuffs it down his face. Who else could do that except for Phil Hoffman? I mean, he is awesome in this movie. Th- that vulnerability, that persona, when he enters the screen, he is magnetic. And he's, I mean, he's the highest war in every movie he's in, so it's almost not fair, but he's on a whole never, another level in this movie. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, picking Hoffman's like a cheat code, but I mean... <laughs> I don't know. I, I could have seen like certain era of Jeff Daniels doing that. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean that's a good that's a good choice, but I, I don't know. I wouldn't put it as high as John C. Riley though. That's so I think I, it's fair. I, I yeah I I'd have to agree. John C. Riley is a pretty good one. Um, I don't think Bruce Willis could have done. It. I think John C. Riley is one of those guys that has is so distinct in who he is. There are no actors that look, that sound, that can pull off a persona quite like John C. Riley. People tell me I look like Han Solo. What do you bench? 
Well, you tell first. I asked you first. Same time. Cool. Are you ready? Ready. One, One two, two, three. You didn't say anything. Oh, neither did you. Um, which makes him always have a, a very high, a very high film war. We'll, we'll go with that. That's how. That's how I'm going uh, to, uh, to bill it. Um, I, I'll also go uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. He's a, he's another great choice. Um, one thing I as I was looking into this movie a little bit, uh, apparently like late '90s, early 2000s, uh, every role that Philip Seymour Hoffman got, Jack Black was also up for. Because oh, he was true. one of the ones also considered for this part, you know, and I could, yeah, I could I totally see, see that, Jack Black in this one much that, more than than uh, than Lester sense. Bangs. Like we talked about, he was up for Lester Bangs, also an almost famous. This one, this is one that uh, that Jack okay, Black could have you, easily slid into. You convinced me, Jack Black could have played Scotty J. I'll change my answer to John C. Riley. You're right because Thank you. it is it is hard to imagine anyone else, and and there is at least one person who could have nailed Scotty J. But uh, I don't know. Phil Hoffman is just amazing. I think maybe but, like mid two thousands, Will Ferrell might have been able to pull off John C. Riley, but that'd be the only one I could. Oh, think pull of. off John C. Riley. Yeah, I could see that. Um, but by the way, just on just on a side note here, since we are talking Boogie Nights, just assume after like every word we say, that's what she said comes after it, and um, and, and then it's uh, a spoiler. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Um, so, uh, I would say, uh, if I'm going to say somebody different, I've, Don Cheadle's really a, a good one, too. Um, so, for somewhat of the same reason, John C. Riley is a great answer for this. Uh, William H. Macy playing Little Bill is another great one, because he is so unique in who he is that whenever he's on screen, it's hard to imagine anybody else playing his role. All right. I'm sorry if my thoughts are not on the photography of the film we're shooting tomorrow. Okay? Okay. No big deal. Sorry. All right. Gotcha. So, um, just to put out somebody different, I'd probably go John C. Riley, but I'm gonna say William H. Macy just so uh, we have some variety. All right. I mean, it, that is pretty much the same sad sack role he had played a lot at the time, and that I mean. Yeah. Oh yeah. Paul Giamatti could have done it. It could have been like Paul Rubens, maybe. <laughs> Paul Rubens. Wow. That would have been super dark, but I mean, I think he would have done That would have been really dark. See, see, William H. Macy plays it, and it's like, okay, this is kind of quirky and funny, and then it goes, whoa, that went that went dark in a hurry. Michael Douglas <laughs> could have done it. Of, that's one of my complaints 80s. about the movie, honestly, is that, like, once he does uh, the murder-suicide, it doesn't mention it again the only time you he's ever mentioned is you see a picture of him or a painting of him at the end like they like it just like he kills himself and it's over and they never talk about him again in the movie but yet they they like linger on this uh this like child pornography uh thing with the colonel and like you even see another scene with him again multiple scenes with him again after that but you never see any of little bill again after after that it's sort of a strange choice to to, I mean, because it was it was an interesting character, even though he kind of is like really bland and and stuff, and, and definitely an outcast within the the group that he's in. But I don't know. I always wanted I'm, more from that. By by the way, the colonel is played by the aforementioned Robert Downey Sr. No, that's Just not true. Just wanted to throw that out there. No, the colonel's played by Robert Ridgely. 
Robert Downey. Oh, no, never mind. Robert Robert Downey Sr. is the studio owner uh, in the studio where um, Dirk Diggler records oh, the yeah. classic "You Got the Touch." Never mind. I you got, got the touch. Got the power. So did you guys see the YouTube clip where he sang that on? Oh, what was it? It was Jimmy on one Kimmel. of the late night shows. Yes, was, I wanted I to bring this that up. Was mentioned brought... on one of our podcasts. <laughs> I was think... it? I... It's the greatest moment on late night TV of the last 10 years. Mark Wahlberg coming out on stage singing You Got the Touch. And he sings it like perfectly out of key. I mean, I think if we're going to talk about performances in this movie, I think I think something that's worth talking about is how good Mark Wahlberg is at being a bad actor. Like, I think that's like maybe the most convincing case for him having a high war in this yeah, movie. Because... Exactly. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, because it's, it's hard to achieve. I mean, I guess uh, in the same way, Julianne Moore is also really good at playing a bad actor. But I mean, that's I don't know. Mark Wahlberg is just so he's so into it and so horrible at it. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I I was I was blown away by what by what Mark Wahlberg did in this movie. He's he's so good. And one of the things that I kept thinking as I was watching it is this is totally the movie where uh, Andy Samberg's impression of Mark Wahlberg came from. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, so, so let's see here. Let's go to uh, let's go to MVP of the movie. Who is the MVP of Boogie Nights? Okay, can I start? Because I have I've been thinking about my MVP all day. For me, it's, all right. For me, it's an obvious one. The MVP of this movie clearly is Ricky Jay as Kurt Longjohn. Because <laughs> think about it, these movies could not be made without Kurt. Clearly, no one on set knows what they're doing. Um, Kurt is has an eye toward the shadows and the light, and he understands that when Jack Horner says it's minimalism, actually that can mean a lot of complex things. And he has the persistence of vision to even not get distracted when little Bill's wife has her <laughs> as uh, Lil yep. says. Um, one of the great lines in the movie. And... Uh, apparently he's so talented that he also edits the movies too because he's in that big studio with the moviola so this guy is like multi-talented and he brings a level of seriousness and dedication to the the movies that jack horner can only dream of i mean when jack horner talks about his grand vision for these movies it's not like he actually brings that to the set the only one who's actually professional is kurt and uh, he's just awesome in the movie. And um, he also is able to adapt to video cassette much easier than anyone else uh, in the movie. In fact, he kind of makes the case that, like, we're just going to shoot it and edit it later in post. And he embraces the video generation. And um, he's just awesome. Uh, without him, these movies do not get made at all. He's the only one with any kind of technical competence in the area of filmmaking. Yeah, that's a good one. Like, uh, we usually do a uh, favorite minor character, and that was definitely going to be mine because he just so shows absolutely no sympathy for little Bill. Like, he's when he says, you know, my wife's out there with a. <laughs> I mean, he just like proceeds to shit, talk Kurt? about the production and the lighting and all that stuff. It, it's so, it's so brilliant. I, I'm like without breaking a smile or like or like shooting a glance over what was going on. He just keeps talking that about it. That is absolutely one of my favorite exchanges in the movie when uh, John C when when uh, William H Macy is talking about how you know 
he might be a little bit distracted. And and then, you know, Ricky Jay says, well, you know, um, we do, like, have a movie tomorrow to shoot, you know, and it might actually be a big deal to think about it. And then William H. Macy is like, are you giving me shit, Kurt? I love that line. <laughs> That's one of my favorite moments of the movie. So, uh, my MVP, I would have to, I would have to go with Buck Swope, uh, Don Cheadle's character. Tell me how to dress. Where does he get out to tell me how to dress? Huh? Baby, it's old. Just plain old. No, wait, let me tell you something, okay, Becky. Me, I don't... First of all, he was obstacles. What's wrong with it, you know? The cowboy look in about six years ago. It's coming back, though, Becky. No, it's not. It's dead, okay? I don't think you know what you're talking about. Um, because at the end of it, he's, he's like the one guy that, that coming out of everything that they did... Um, that came out of it successfully. Sure, it was by some lucky fluke chance, but he comes out as, as a success story. He's actually employing some of these people in uh, in legitimate business, and so uh, I'm going. I'm going. Buck. Buck is the MVP. All right, I'm going to throw out a controversial opinion here. I think the movie does not need Buck Swope. In fact, I feel like Buck Swope is one of the flaws of this movie. I do not really care about his character. We don't really see him in any of the scenes where he's acting in um, in any of the movies. I feel like he's sort of a gimmick because anytime he appears on screen, it's basically just showing what his new look is based on the year that they're showing. And uh, he's really kind of peripheral to the whole story. Um, we, I, I, I think we can do without him. I think he's one of the flaws in the movie. I think Don Cheadle's a good actor and he has some good moments in the movie. I really like the scene where he's trying to sell the, the hi-fi record player at the, the beginning of the movie. TK421. TK421, named after the stormtrooper that uh, Luke Skywalker wears his suit for in, in the Star Wars. Um, but uh, I, I, I've, ne- I, I've never really loved the Buck Swope character, and even upon rewatching it, um, I don't think he's a necessary part of what is already an, an embellished and over-the-top movie. I don't agree. See, with that. I, 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 I love, uh, I love his character because it shows um, a type of character that none of the others are. He is, he is the guy trying to be a legitimate actor that is finding work where he can, and that's why he keeps on saying, "I'm an actor. This is just, this just happens to be the job I have right now." But I'm an actor. Where the rest of them are all there for different reasons. He's there because he wants to act, and that's the one job he could get. Um, just so he could pay the bills, um, but uh, I think him bringing that different persona to it, I I love like the scene with him in the bank is one of my favorite scenes in the movie because it shows that you know there's consequences for what he's trying to what he's trying to do, and it, it just can't be no I'm I'm doing I'm doing this because it's what it, it it's the the phase of my career. Um, He's finally coming to grips with that. No, I, I love his character. Uh, I thought I wish there was more of what he was doing. He's not a bad character. I just don't think he belongs in this movie. I think this movie has a distinct universe, and this guy is only peripherally involved in the universe. And I think the movie is heavy-handed in the way that it kind of shows his character as this archetype of the, of the tragic, fallen character who tries to go straight. I've seen that in way too many movies. And uh, for, for me, anytime that we get a scene with him, even in the bank, as, as good of a scene as that is, um, it just doesn't belong in the movie. It feels like it's from a different movie. All right, well, Todd, where are you at with MVP? All right, well, there are two that I think. Uh, one is Julianne Moore, because she's, like, the the mother figure, and she's an aspiring filmmaker, and I don't think Dirk would have been anything without her support and love. 
But I think the real MVP is cocaine because every character is so whacked out on blow the entire movie. It's hard to imagine it without it. Like, I mean, like, even, like, Paul Thomas Anderson is clearly, clearly high, as are all the actors. I, I mean, take that out of the party, and I don't know. I don't think it would have been nearly as fun or as timeless and, like, vintage late 70s, but also totally a 90s movie. I think that's what makes, <laughs> what takes the movie over the top. Like, the influence of cocaine on this movie is the MVP. That's a great call. Yeah, yeah, and and you can definitely hear it in like Paul Thomas Anderson's commentary track, and um, yes, it, it it definitely has an impact on the movie. Although later they do seem to move to crystal meth, as uh, Dirk uh, talks about. Just once. <laughs> well, that's but see that that signals the decline of the movie. It coincides with the rise of crystal meth. Okay. So should we talk about right, uh, worst we- worst performances? Yes. Okay. Yes. Because this is, we're, okay, this so is are not we talking easy about, to come up with. But 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 this is a dis- okay. Are we making the distinction though? Worst performance, and L- is LV least valuable player separate, or are they just kind of the same thing? Are you talking like uh, the worst, worst performance is different? Okay. Okay. I like it. Good. Worst performance. Okay. So I don't think there are any real bad performances in this. I, I think William H Macy is wooden and sort of bewildering and i i'm not i think he kind of phones it in because every scene with him it's like he's not playing a bad actor because he's not an actor he's like you know he's a crew guy and i don't i i never actually believe his character necessarily even though it'd be hard to replace him because it is william h macy but the one i would say is louis guzman because i don't think he really brings anything special to the character he basically is just playing diaz from grand theft auto vice city and i'm not (laughs) he can't even spell his name right on the side of his building so i don't know i I, it's just it's just one of those it's 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 a louis guzman it's it's him playing himself once again and i i I don't think that really was necessary (laughs) or does that make him a high war performance Oh, but anybody could, could play the dumb Spanish guy in the crew. I don't know. Don't you think? Yeah. I'm go. All right, I've got one. My worst performance is uh, Nina Hartley as Little Bill's wife. Oh, I disagree. Because I mean, she <laughs> she like adds nothing. Let's go sleep on she, the couch, she's, Bill. She's just she's just reading her lines. Absolutely uh, disagree. She's awesome <laughs> in this movie. I mean, I. <laughs> She's the only real one that like bears it, you know. You know, it, it as as Mickey Rourke said in his 2008 acceptance speech. You know, not all girls can climb the pole. Not not everyone can climb the pole. And Nina Hartley brings it, man. She delivers in this performance. And it's kind of funny to read about the kind of stuff that happened, like while the filming of this movie. Like she informed a lot of these people about working in porn because she was one of the few people on the set that had experience with it. And. Um, I don't know. I, I think she's awesome in the movie. I love her delivery, and uh, she's she's great. She's someone that uh, simultaneously you can absolutely hate and loathe and feel disgusted by, and then at the same time you can look at little Bill and sort of understand where she's coming from. I disagree. <laughs> well, you also like Avengers Endgame, and you gave it three and a half stars. You I'm gave it go... three stars. Yeah, that was a long time ago. I'm going to go with... Uh, <laughs> 
because you're right, there's not a lot of bad performances in this movie. I'm going to go with Greg Lauren as the character known as Young Stud. And he is in the scene where um, it's at the pool party, and he uh, is with the colonel's girlfriend. And he's the one that says, uh, this is twice in two days, a chick has OD'd on me. And, um, yeah, it's just like, it's a, there's only one other actor who could have also played that role, and that's Brian Garrity. And, um, you know, someone who's going to scream and say that line, um, it's just, I don't know, sort of an over-the-top, sort of thankless line, and uh, he's just a little over-the-top and thankless. I think Mark Wahlberg could have played that role, too, actually. Uh, absolutely. He, I mean, it's not a very high-war <laughs> performance, because you only have one thing to say, but um, it's just, I don't know, it's just a little whiny, you know? Um, but maybe that's who the character is. I think she might be sick. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think it would have been it would have been uh, kind of a fun homage to Pulp Fiction if Eric Stoltz had played that character. Oh, now we're talking a little yeah. bit. Yeah. And then, like the colonel, like scolds him about you know you think this you, you may think this means you ought to get some new shit, stud. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, not not like you should find a new lifestyle. You should probably get some new coke. Right, exactly. It's like the drugs that you have. It's not like a lifestyle choice. Okay, well, I think I, I think this does lead into the the distinction that I made earlier. Who is the least valuable player of this movie? The LVP, and you know, we're not talking about performances necessarily, but the character that just gets the most under your skin and just is like the most is the worst character in this movie. All right, least valuable player, uh, Todd Parker, played by Thomas Jane. Good choice. Uh, he he just <laughs> he adds nothing and just ruins everything. That that's all he's there to do. Um, he, he completely loses it in the, in the scene in, uh, at, uh, oh, what's his name? Ray Hot uh, Jackson. Ray Hot Jackson's house. Hot, come on, man. Shut up, Dirk. I, t- I told you I got a plan. I got a very good plan. Are you, are you kidding me, Kitty? Nah, I'm not, see? I'm not kidding. I want what's in the safe. We want what is in the goddamn safe in the goddamn master bedroom or on the goddamn Safe, that's all. Uh, completely goes off the deep end, and uh, and ruins everything, and uh, and uh, I'm uh, I was glad when he was gone. So are we like combining this and biggest douchebag because? Um, oh, they, they kind of yeah, is the sure. same thing. Yeah, yeah. Do it. All right. Well, I don't know. I I feel like. I feel like Todd is always a douchebag character in movies. It always pisses me off. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. I, I hadn't thought of a least valuable player yet, though. I can't think of that many other movie Todds. I, I know in uh, Disney's The Fox and the Hound, uh, the fox's name is Todd. That's the only other Todd I can think of. Uh, Beavis and Butthead, there's a Todd, he's like the cool guy, but he's total douchebag to Beavis and Butthead. That's one I can think of right now. Terry, can you think of any Todds? The only thing I can think of is Todd Luiso, whose most famous role is playing a guy named Dick. (laughs) And yet again. All right, well, well, I'll go with, with my biggest douchebag slash MVP, and I think it's a pretty clear choice. I think it's pretty clearly um, Dirk Diggler's mom. She's a pretty oh, terrible human being. Oh, what do you think you're doing? I'm getting my stuff. You think that's your stuff? That's not your stuff. You didn't pay for it. That is not your stuff because you didn't pay for it, stupid. None of this is yours. This, 
You leave here! You leave with what you've got! Um, she's played by, uh, I don't know the name of the actress. All I know her as is the governor from Mr. Holland's Opus. And, uh, she... <laughs> it is! I was wondering where I'd seen her. Yeah, she goes from being governor of Oregon to being, you know, this, like, uh, horrible mother for, like, no apparent reason. Like, what is she getting on Eddie from Torrance's case for? Like, she's waiting for him at night, and then she just, like, rips into him. She does, She just assumes that he's been at his little tramp girlfriend's house. She must dislike this girl for some reason. Maybe, I don't know, it's like her fascination, you know, the, her, his girlfriend is into horses. Maybe she doesn't like horses. I don't know. And then she, like, rips down his posters. Like, what the hell? That's so uncalled for, lady. Um, and, you know, the, the, the dad's just sitting there in bed. He doesn't know what to do. Allegedly, the mother character of Dirk Diggler is based on the mother of paul thomas anderson so i guess we don't want to go there with that but she's a pretty terrible human being um and uh and pretty despicable uh, throughout the movie well see that, that that uh is one of the things another problem i have with the movie is like i don't i really think we need more scenes with her because we don't understand any of her actions like you're right in, in in the commentary track paul thomas anderson talks about how he wish he could have added at least 10 to 20 minutes more footage that would have delved into the relationship between eddie and his mom uh, because he, he, he says the same thing. He said after watching it the first time in the final cut, he was not satisfied with how poorly developed that relationship was. Because it's an abrupt shift. You know, it's like the morning scene and she's making him breakfast or whatever. And then the very next scene, she's just going apeshit crazy and tearing down his posters. Like, we need a little bit more context. I agree. But that doesn't mean she's not the biggest douchebag in the movie. Yeah, she really comes off as a horrible, horrible person. That that scene that scene in his room where she starts ripping down the posters that is one of the most heartbreaking scenes you know I've seen in a while. It's just, it's just it just rips you at your gut. But and then you, it's and interesting you, and you really... that later on Dirk's like like yells to Amber like you're not my f-ing mom. It's like it's like he actually holds her to some sort of standard too at the same time. It's kind of weird. <laughs> But but you really get the get the sense in that scene that Mark Wahlberg's character is still just a little boy, and th- and that's what and that's where you see his acting really come out in yeah, this. Agreed, absolutely. Is, is he he shows I'm still just this little boy who wants my mom to love me. Yeah. And it, it just rips you right at your gut watching you, that happen. If you're going to make the case for Mark Wahlberg being the highest war performance in this movie, it seems like that, where, where he's really able to bring out like vulnerability and innocence in the character. I don't know if a lot of other actors, even Leonardo DiCaprio, I don't know if he could have brought that out in, in, that perform, in, 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 in that context. But like the first 30 to 45 minutes of this movie, like he's just like almost like a little kid. Like He's got this goofy, big 70s like hair. Like He's cousin Oliver from the Brady Bunch. And, you know, when he's, like, crying that his mom rips down his posters, he's, like, really, like, innocuous. And I think that's key to the character is that because because without those scenes establishing the context of that character, then later in the movie when we see how much of a douchebag Dirk Diggler even becomes when he's talking in Amber's documentary about violence and whatever and he becomes egotistical, um, it's just a, such a stark contrast from that innocent kind of virtuous little kid that we see earlier in the movie. Todd, do you have a douchebag yet? Uh... Well, I don't know. Well, least valuable, I would say, might be, like, Reha Jackson's, like, uh, bodyguard guy. Because, I mean... He's pretty useless. 
He's, yeah, I mean, he's clearly got a gun hanging from his, like, massive jacket that he's wearing, and he couldn't even pull it out fast enough for, for, uh, Todd <laughs> to, uh, to not notice it or to, yeah, I mean, I don't, he, he, yeah, he pretty much almost ruined the entire thing right then. That, I mean, that'd be one that I would say is the le- least valuable player, but yeah, I mean, Todd's definitely a douchebag, as well as, uh, Little Bill's wife. Because, you know. Yeah. She yeah. she treats him like shit. I mean, just go sleep on the couch. I mean, like, what is he, what does she think he is? Like, he, he's just, like, some, like, lost puppy or something? I don't know. Little Bill's wife is on the uh, the all-star team of female stickmen. She, is that where we should the, go next? She, she's one of the captains. Best um, stickmen? Well, well, okay, yes. I think we should go there next. But before we go there, I'm kind of shocked. There, there are two more really big douchebags in this movie that I'm surprised neither of you mentioned. One is obviously uh, the colonel. I mean, this guy is a pedophile, and because of his pedophilia, he simultaneously he kind of like sinks the whole industry. Because after he goes to jail, that's when they hire the uh, Philip Baker Hall character, who also kind of catapults the industry seriously downward, um, and and kind of tanks everything. I may have slept through that part. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, yeah, I can't Picker totally blame you, Terry. In the movie. I, I do think Philip, the Philip Baker Hall scenes are pretty boring in this movie. Um, they don't really belong. And uh, then the other biggest douchebag is the banker that turns uh, Buck down for his loan. That's totally uncalled for. He's he's terrible. What yeah, about? It probably oh, wasn't I, his call though. It doesn't matter. Buck is Buck. Buck's the only virtuous character in the movie. Also, any guy that has sex with Roller Girl, you know, whether it's the guy in the high school classroom or it's the guy in the limo from CSUN. Uh, they're, oh, they're the terrible. guy in the limo is—he's a douchebag. They're the same I, guy, the same right? Guy. Okay, good, good conspiracy the theory guy. question. I don't know if they're the same guy or not. It could be, but I mean, I think yeah, we, he says he went to. Class together. I mean, I, I thought that was the sign that they were because they kind of look the same. If they're not, if they're not the same guy, they they really look alike. That's what I was thinking too. Can um can I go into one? I more was going to say the guy from her class was the biggest douchebag because he. I mean, like they're taking a test, and like I mean. So we, <laughs> you really think that that guy shows up later in the limo? Is that the same character you're thinking? Yeah, pretty sure. I mean, it would be kind of far-fetched, but I mean, may- uh, maybe. I, that's what I thought they were going for. I mean, it's not... I, I would agree that it's, it's conceivable. I also have a similar conspiracy theory to that, which is I think that the character who walks into Buck's record store at the beginning of the movie is the same character later in the movie who uh, pays Dirk uh, to jack off in the car. Yeah, I mean that's another. They look, they look pretty similar. They look similar. the exact same, <laughs> and like six years have passed, so those minor differences, you know. I always thought that the, the guy in his time. truck looked like uh, looked like a uh, one of the Lawrences, like from Brotherly Love. Like he, he's got the <laughs> he's got bit. the hair and the eyes. <laughs> All right, an- another another great douchebag is uh is the. The young kid that replaces Dirk Diggler. Oh yes, good call. Yeah, there's a I lot mean, of douchebags. Like, he's in this like movie. the yeah. definition of of a douchebag. Yeah, what, what, what's his line? Uh, what does he say to Jack? Like when he's about re- when he's ready to roll. 
What do you say? I have no idea. I, I don't know says. either, but it's something douchey. <laughs> yeah, it's way less than like, I'm ready to rock and roll. <laughs> or like, you know, looking in the mirror and like acting like you're Bruce Lee. I'm a star, I'm a star, I'm a star. Alright, do we have any more categories we want to go through? What was the one we were just about to say? Best we were stick man? Say, best stick man, yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so, I think I think Todd is kind of a stick man. Like, he's a total asshole, and, like, I mean, he's definitely a douchebag, as we said, but, like, he carries himself like he is the absolute shit. Like, he walks into that party, and he's, like, he feels like he's the center of attention until Scotty J obviously makes it seem like, like, a, like Dirk is, like, is the guy who, and uh, but I don't know. I think Todd is definitely a stick man, and also Dirk is clearly a stick man. He says he's thirteen inches, and uh, his girlfriend compliments him on like three different ways of making love or hooking up or whatever you want to say. It. He is definitely a stick man as well. Even before he was in the in the business, people paid that's, him to jerk off. That's true, but those were just like dirty old men. See, I think quietly Dirk is not actually a great stick man. I think he's got the goods and he's got the resume, but if you look at he's the, got mo- the touch, he's got the touch. Absolutely. <laughs> he's got the power. Yeah. But his group says, you're so good at making love <laughs> me, you know, whatever. It's like he should, uh, having sex, <laughs> me making love to me. Like, I mean, does not make you seem like he is like the iron chef of pounding Vage. <laughs> That's super bad, by the way, Terry, I can tell you didn't know that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think Todd is a, is a terrible choice I personally would go with Reed Rothschild as the biggest stick man in this movie because it's pretty clear that he has established himself in this industry long before Dirk did and um, it's also pretty clear that he has sex with many different women whereas Dirk really only has sex with Amber Waves and Roller Girl we don't see a lot of um, I don't know, versatility in, in his Well, no, he does with the girl that says she wanted to work with him at the Adult Movie Awards, and then he does in the very next oh, scene. Oh, Jesse, they... Jesse St. Vincent? I guess that's true. Hey. But, I don't know. Um, I, I, Reed, Reed has a more polished pedigree before before Dirk ever enter, enters the industry. So. And plus he squats 350, so. That's true. And Reed's pe- a... people say that he looks like Han Solo, too. Han Solo. Dude, oh, Reed's, a, Reed's a nerdy poser. I I, I think... No. Um, I, I think the more interesting question on this would be, who's the who's the worst stick man? Oh, that's easy. Um, easy. Yeah, well, yeah, that might be easy, but uh, I'm going to go with uh, best stick man. I'm going to go... Maybe not necessarily uh, how she wants it to be, but Roller Girl. Well, sure. She gets if- around about as much as anybody. If if we're talking about women in this category, then yes, it's got to be sure. Little Bill's wife. Then obviously, Little Bill's wife would. Yeah. Well, yeah, we already mentioned that. <laughs> I liked your question, so, though, Terry, of of worst stick men, because in in some ways that's a more interesting question for this movie. Yeah, the, the, this I movie that, is is a special case in this question, this category. I think it's got to be Kurt Longjohn, right? I, I don't <laughs> I don't see how he's ever getting any action. I mean, I know you're probably yeah. going to say Scotty J, but he's gay. And, and like, the <laughs> colonel, I mean, he's a pedophile. It's not, I mean, like, those guys no. aren't. You can't call them not, stickmen. I was not going to say either of them. The character I was going to go with that I thought was clearly the, the worst stickman in the movie is Maurice. Well, you know, I got this club, yeah, that's one thing. 
beast. Two black goals, I die. And what do I have? I got nothing. So, you know, I want something I can send home, you know? Something I can send to my brothers and say, look at me. Look at me and all the beautiful women I've been with. I mean, Maurice wants to get in the industry, and he can't do it. And if you watch the deleted scenes of the movie, he, there's extensive scenes about how his dick is really small, and he has trouble performing, just like Miles did. And uh, Jack solace for that. Supposedly. <laughs> he, he needs Jack there as a wingman to help him gain confidence. I'm going to say that the, uh, that the worst stick man in the movie... Are we, only going, are we only going men, or can we go women, too? Sure, go women. Okay, the worst stick man in the movie is Dirk's mom, because um, if you are that horrible of a person, I mean, there's a reason Dirk's an only child. Um, yeah, yeah, and and you you look at Dirk's dad in some of those scenes, it's like, yeah, there's no. <laughs> see, I would go Dirk's dad before Dirk's mom. I mean, I, I could that's see possible. Dirk, Dirk's mom getting it in, but Dirk's dad. I mean, that guy is just you know he sits up in bed and doesn't say anything and. He's so passive and milk toast, you know, he's pretty pathetic. Okay, I also want to, uh, so is this, uh, another category could be, is this any of these actors' best performance ever? Because I feel like there are like five or six that you could definitely make a case that it is. I would say this is Mark Wahlberg's best performance ever. I agree. Um... I this, think it's you, Don Cheadle's could... best performance ever. I think it's Tom Jane's best performance wow. ever. It's very possible that it's Burt Reynolds' best performance ever. Wow. Even though I Julian. don't think that he's necessarily... It's not a high war, but I still think it might be his best. And I think it's... Po John C. Riley. it's either this or Magnolia, which is I think is strange that he has not worked with Paul Thomas Anderson again since then. I think you could say it's Julianne Moore's best performance ever. Absolutely not. You can make not. that argument. No way. No. You can make it's the, you be can make the argument. You can make no. the argument. Far From the Heaven other... is in another galaxy, but, I mean, Boogie yeah. Nights is in that next group. I was going to say Heather Graham. What, what I was going to say yeah, Heather, Heather Graham, Graham, too. Sure. She's awesome in this movie. Yeah, I think she's, but like, She really never had another opportunity. Movie, After this, she never really had much of an opportunity to do a serious movie, either. Like what? What's her? What's her best? Other than Boogie Nights, her best credit is uh, Austin Powers. Store Cowboy. <laughs> Drugstore Cowboy. Sure. That was Austin, like ten years before yeah. too. That's Austin Powers um, is probably a good choice, or The Hangover. It's the only one I would think of. I think it might be Don say, Cheadle's best performance too. Yeah, it's it's either this or Hotel Rwanda. I mean, th those are the two you'd have to go with for him. Um. I I would I would I wouldn't be uh, I wouldn't be opposed to saying it's his best performance. The only one I, that hesitates me with Burt Reynolds is like maybe like Deliverance or something like that. But I really don't think he was ever better than he was in this. What about uh What about Alfred Molina? Yeah, that's. It could be. <laughs> I mean, it could be his best performance too. Maybe an Education. That'd be the only one I could think of. Or that movie where he was uh, romantically involved with John Lithgow and they needed to get an apartment. Um, 
Oh, that, I know what you're talking about, but yeah, I have no idea what I it is. I have no clue what that movie was called either. Um, <laughs> but that, it was, was a good Ira Sachs movie. Ira Sachs movie, yeah. Oh shit, I Love don't is Strange from Love it? is Strange. Wow, Todd. Oh, Todd so that reminds me, that, like, because Marissa Tomei's in that. I I had read that Paul Thomas Anderson wrote the role with Marissa Tomei in in mind for Amber Waves, which yes. would have been unbelievable. I can totally see that. Yeah. So, Especially so that was, the scenes with her and Roller Girl, man, that would have been something. That was going to be my ne- next category. Is I, I know I'm kind of stealing this from another podcast, but uh, casting what ifs. What is the greatest what if casting? Because there's a, there's been a lot of speculation. There's been a lot of reporting about uh, actors who were hired for these roles and and that didn't go through. So Todd, you would you would go with Marissa Tomei. Yeah, I mean that that would have. I think she would have been better than Julianne Moore. Like it, it's that is a total Marissa May role that she could even play ten years later than that. Even I, I cannot argue with that. Um, I'm very intrigued by the possibility of Sean Penn as Rahad, Rahad Jackson. Oh man! <laughs> I mean, we're thinking like mid '90s Sean Penn, like Carlito's Way Sean Penn, Dead Man Walking Sean Penn, like. He would have just like exploded in that movie, and and I mean, in a way, it may have taken away from the movie because he would have been so distracting as Rayhad Jackson. But he he could have he could have absolutely nailed it. I'm also intrigued by the possibility of uh, Bill Murray as Jack Horner. Um, that that would have no. been some really interesting casting. I'd heard that, that Sidney Pollack was uh, originally put poised for that role, which would have been dark. Sidney Pollack, uh, Harvey Keitel, Warren, Warren Beatty, Beatty, Jack Nicholson. Yeah. Another really interesting one um, that was offered the role of uh, Roller Girl was Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh yeah, that would have been mm. really interesting. I could I could see it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and Gwyneth Paltrow had worked with Paul Thomas Anderson on Heart Eight slash Sydney. Mm-hmm. So one thing I thought was interesting about Boogie Nights is that Eddie Eddie said he he saw Star Wars four times. Like, what is his taste in movies? Because he he saw Star Wars four times, and then he has a poster of Serpico on his wall, and yet yeah. he wants to be Bruce Lee because he does karate. Like, like I don't know. I I feel like is that is that like. I don't know. Is that a plot hole that like w- like he seems like he watches a ton of movies, but I feel like I cannot actually see him sitting down and watching a movie, especially not Serpico. Dude, dude it's Serpico's, the seventies. Serpico's a, cha- a strange choice. I would agree with that. That that poster does stick out. It feels like it would be much more likely that he would have a poster of like Rocky or Saturday Night Fever. Um, but Serpico well, is everything he wants to do. Unusual. Like when he buys his new clothes, it's like all Italian stuff. It's like it's clearly he wants to be part of the Godfather too, or something. Oh like yeah, that, right. I wrote that down actually. That that was one of my favorite lines in the movie when he talks about how he's wearing imported Italian nylon, and it's like clearly not. It's like clearly like <laughs> schlocky, schlubby clothes that you could probably buy from Goodwill. Yeah, because and, and then because Scotty them. and Reed bought the same right, shirt exactly. <laughs> Uh, well, and maybe maybe having Serpico on your wall is, is kind of like, what, having Scarface on your wall? I mean, it, it, it's kind of like the cool poster to have, I don't know. Serpico isn't cool, been, though. He's a cop. Yeah, like, Scarface I, is a gangster. <laughs> Todd, do you think that, that Eddie has actually seen Serpico? 
I, th I think <laughs> he just what has I'm the saying. I don't. Wall. I don't buy it. I don't buy that he saw Star Wars, Serpico, and he wants to be Bruce Lee. <laughs> Those don't go together. I think Serpico is a little too intelligent for Eddie. I mean, no offense, but you know, Eddie dropped out of school. I, I, I Serpico is like a thoughtful, intelligent movie. I, I, I don't know if he saw it. But then he wants to be like a James Bond character, which is why Brock and Chest uh, end up becoming a thing. You know. Oh no. He's, I I can't see that character because he's got to be like a teenager. Like I can't see him being that obsessed with film at the time. But I guess it's possible. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, that kind of leads to another question that that I had, or maybe another category, which is how would we rank the Dirk Diggler filmography? I mean, we don't really get a sense of all the films that Dirk Diggler makes. Apparently it's a prodigious amount. But based on the limited exposure we get to some of Dirk's films, what would you say are his best films? Well, I mean, I, Angels Live in My Town has got to be his best movie, right? I mean, even Jack said that. He, he's like, he's watching the thing he's just shot, and he's like, this is the best thing we've ever done. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's got to be his best movie, right? Like... <laughs> like, don't make me chase you, Raphael. <laughs> that, is a, that is a quote only John C. Riley could can make sound as weird and funny as that. I mean, it does seem like Paul Thomas Anderson definitely feels like Angels Live in My Town is Dirk's magnum opus. And with, I don't know if you watched the music video that they made for for Boogie Nights um, on the on the DVD, but but they made a music video that is in this really long hallway in Los Angeles, and apparently they made it in the middle of the movie's like long ordeal with the rating system. And in that music video, Philip Seymour Hoffman is wearing a jacket that is says Angels in My Town on it, or Live in My Town, <laughs> kind of like the Frass Canyon shirt, I guess. Yes. Um, I would personally go with Spanish Pantalones because uh, it's the film that he, it's his breakthrough film. It's the film that he wins several awards for at the second annual Adult Film Awards. And um, he didn't even need a Spanish accent in it, even though he offers to use his Spanish accent in the film. That, that would have been gold to hear. Uh, is that, is that, uh, is that get... that's the one where he goes like, he's like, I'm going to ask you one thing. I'm going to ask you nicely. Where the f*** is Rico, you bitch? <laughs> is, is that the one? <laughs> Actually, I don't know if that's Spanish Pantalonis. I thought that was the Brock Landers film that he asked But that that's question. a Rico. He's, Rico, I would think that they would make that. I don't know. That's a I... good point, though. It's a, it's a plot hole. Because why is Rico... <laughs> In the Brock Landers <laughs> film, when it should be in Spanish Pantalones. <laughs> it was clearly in like Van Nuys or something like that. <laughs> All right, I, I'm gonna take this a slightly different direction. I think the 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 greatest film that that Dirk Diggler does is Boogie Nights because let's let, follow me here. Boogie Nights is the film that Jack Horner always wanted to make. Yeah. It is it, it is the film that he 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 wanted to do. He wanted to to legitimize it. He wanted to make a real story, make um, film history. Exactly, and 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 so I'm gonna say I'm gonna say this film where where this is all happening. This is what Jack Horner always wanted to do. So this is the best that's he very, ever did. That's very meta. It's like the time travel in Avengers, Terry. You're like breaking the <laughs> rules with it. <laughs> Uh, 
Okay, well, well, this kind of leads on. It, it's kind of nice that you said that, Terry, because this this sort of pro- provides a segue to something that I wanted to talk about. Maybe this is maybe this this will start our conversation about the biggest flaw of the movie. But I think one of the things that is unsatisfying about this movie is how Jack Horner has the best scene in the movie with Burt Reynolds is the scene in the coffee shop at the beginning of the movie where he talks about how he has this grand vision for making porno movies where people actually stay through the whole movie because they're so compelled to watch and see how the story ends. It is my dream, it is my goal, it is my idea to make a film that the story just sucks them in. And when they spurt out that joy juice, they just gotta sit in it. They can't move until they find out how the story ends. And he gives this great speech. I mean, it's absolutely wonderfully written. It's like a Tarantino speech or something. And um, we really get the sense that this character is passionate about making high-quality movies with compelling stories, and he wants to radicalize the adult film industry. Great. Great. I mean, that sets us up absolutely wonderfully. But the movie doesn't follow through with it because if you watch the scene with Dirk and Amber, that dialogue is so terrible. I mean, it's like... This is a giant cock. Do you have your delivery? I mean, it's clearly it, he's he's not a good filmmaker. Like he has this grandiose vision for what he wants to do, but he can never execute it because he's not actually that great of a filmmaker. And maybe that's maybe that's what Paul Thomas Anderson wanted to show because later in the movie, of course, you know, Jack feels vulnerable that that people call him out. Like that kid from the college, you know, says, "You don't you don't make good movies anymore." But I don't know. I just feel disappointed. Well, and Amber that... actually has success in the industry too as a filmmaker, sort of. Of course, she makes I mean, like she's a better... cool Better Call Saul type commercial thing. You well, know? that's. I mean, that's one of the questions I also had. Is is quietly is Amber Waves a better filmmaker than Jack? But I guess what I think one of the flaws of this movie is that he sets us up to believe that he wants to make these audacious, ambitious movies that transcend the adult film industry at the time, but he never does because his dialogue and stories are so terrible. Was he the writer though? I, I don't. I wouldn't really think that he's the writer. Well, well, who else is though? I mean, he's someone has to come up with with these stories, and and he's the one talking about how the story is like the impetus to people being compelled by the movie, and it's total bullshit because his movies suck. I mean, well, he doesn't I think that, really like, transcend reverse the casting couch thing with Amber Waves and and. Uh, Chetner and uh, Dirk is actually kind of interesting. That that actually sort of ages well because that that's not really the way you would originally like conceive. You know, someone trying to get cast in a movie being the female being the executive. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it it is a pretty terribly put together scene. But I I don't know. I mean, I, Paul Thomas Anderson talks about how he he used a lot of dialogue from actual like John Holmes movies, and. So like he wanted to be he wanted to have fidelity to the source material. So I get that, but I just don't understand how that's consistent with the Jack Horner character talking about how he wants to transcend the current trends in the industry. It just seems like a maybe he never was any maybe he wanted to, but he just wasn't good enough to do it. I mean, he he's also, you know, talking about he doesn't want to go go to like film on straight to tape or whatever, you know. I mean, I don't know. Or what if what if what if that terrible dialogue was transcending what if that level of plot line was transcending and it's and i think he's porn yeah it could be yeah possibly. And, and and i think I, I think when when you take it to the to the brock landers level that's when it really does start to transcend 
because it's something that you that you want to see through, even though it is what it is. Possibly, but I, I don't know. I mean, he talks about how he wants, like, you know, people to, like, you know, get the joy juice out in the movie theater, but then stay because they want to see how the story ends. And it just doesn't seem like the movies he shoots really follow through with that at all. I mean, but, they, but, they're all crap. But the Brock Landers movies are basically just, like, you know, they're basically thrillers. I mean, that, that would that would that sort of establishes that, right? I mean, yeah, like the movie he shoots, the, Dirk's first movie. Yeah, I mean that that's pretty bad. But I mean, it gets better with when Dirk expresses his vision too. But that's not Jack who says it. But maybe I mean that maybe that's intentional on the part of Paul Thomas Anderson to show that Jack Horner is kind of full of shit. I mean, he talks this big talk about how he wants to change the industry, and really the only innovative things that come in the movie come from. Dirk and and um, Reed. Th- th- this conversation's getting too deep. I don't know. <laughs> are, are you saying this this film does not uh, does not warrant this deep of a <laughs> of a conversation? That's exactly what I'm saying. I mean, you know, I think Buck might have been the movie. writer of the movies because we never actually see him act. We don't see him acting. He's not part of the crew. I think he might have been the writer. Maybe. Maybe. So I, I had a fun category I wanted to throw out. Um, which character would Nicolas Cage play in this movie? <laughs> Ray Hod, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> I love this category. We need to do this every time. <laughs> Ray Hod Jackson is basically the same character he plays in Kiss of Death. Like, I mean... Or, and in Sunny, like uh, total, I think he totally played Ray Hot. Well, yeah, you know, late two thousands Nicholas Cage would, but I think he could play a lot of characters. I could see him as Scotty J. I could see him as Reed. <laughs> oh, now you now you can see more people as Scotty J. <laughs> I guess that's true. <laughs> he never would have been Scotty J. That's a he could have played great Scotty J. That's a good call. That's he a, could play Reed though. I mean, he could play Reed. Oh, that was man. the one that popped into my head. Oof. Especially, especially 1997. I mean, this is like Con Air, Nicolas Cage here. I can see him playing Bucks. Well, too. I mean, like yeah, that that would be a really interesting and scene with him in the him in the stereo store. He could have played the boss in the stereo store too. <laughs> yeah. Also, a douchebag in this movie. We forgot about the boss. Yeah, he does cause sort of a uh, shit on his. Uh, music taste and fire him pretty much out of nowhere yeah i think it's got to be either ray hod or or reed those are the two um he might I forgot to play todd yeah probably that's a that, that's another good call and i think really i mean 2019 nicholas cage probably could play jack horner absolutely i was thinking absolutely. that absolutely or the colonel That'd yeah. be weird. I mean, he could wear those glasses, <laughs> man. He could pull that off. Um, I forgot to mention that... Um, so, you know, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson was inspired to make this movie um, really starting in his teenage years. And he made this wonderful 30-minute short film called The Dirk Diggler Story. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was his first kind of foray into filmmaking. He made it when he was 17 years old. He shot it on, like, super cheap video tape and in preparation for this podcast i watched that movie have either of you ever seen that nope i yeah i did at one point 
it's it's a really interesting short film. Um, it's actually I th- I think pretty well done. Um, and he actually has uh the actor who plays the colonel. It it plays uh Jack Horner um in the movie. Uh, Robert Ridgely and Paul Thomas Anderson's dad, Ernie Anderson, who was the voice of the ABC TV network, is the narrator. And um, it, it, it's it's a pretty cool like short film. Uh, Paul Thomas Anderson talks about how he he was very much basing it off of like this is Spinal Tap, like a faux mockumentary type thing. Um, and it's kind of funny to see the uncanny parallels between the Dirk Lieberkuller story and. Boogie Nights. Some scenes are like shot-for-shot remakes, including the scene when Dirk sings You Got the Touch. Um, That is in the original Dirk Diggler story. The biggest difference, though, in my mind, there are two biggest differences between Boogie Nights and the Dirk Diggler story. One is that in the Dirk Diggler story, Dirk is actually a good singer versus Mark Wahlberg singing in Boogie Nights, which leaves a lot to be desired. And the second difference is that in the Dirk Diggler story, um, Paul Thomas Anderson clearly establishes Dirk and Reed as gay lovers. I mean, that's just that's that's an obvious kind of subplot in the movie. So it, it's hmm. it's worth watching though if you're a fan of of Boogie Nights. It's it's pretty it's pretty cool to watch. There's definitely a bromance between <laughs> Eddie and Reed for sure. Like. The, the scene that they meet, it's, like, this awesome pissing contest of, like, who could... It's almost like eight, two 8th graders, like, trying to, like, t- impress their mutual crush or something like that when they're talking about how much you squat, how much you bench, and, like, just, like, I don't know, and, then like, what kind of dives you can do into the pool and stuff like that. That's it one feels of the, like something that belonged more in a Feral Riley comedy. Like, it, yeah. it, it yeah, sounded it, it like... Yeah, it pretty much was, like, yeah, did we just become best friends? <laughs> That's basically yep. what they should have just said at that point. <laughs> I also think if you're backing up John C. Riley's case as the highest war performance, that belly flop into the swimming pool. I, I don't know of any other actors that could do that. That was awesome. You, you got to rotate your legs all the way, man. <laughs> and Chess so, Rockwell so as... is a pretty badass name. That's even a better name than Brock Landers. It is. Uh, so as you guys were talking, I was looking something up. So Robert Ridgely, the guy who plays the Colonel, um, his uh, performance in Boogie Nights, Boogie Nights was actually a posthumous uh, performance. Uh, he died in uh, in February of 1997 from cancer at the age of 65, and Boogie Nights wasn't released until October of 1997. Yeah, if you watch the credits, um, you can. The film is dedicated to two people. One is Ernie Anderson, who was Paul Thomas Anderson's dad, and the other is Robert Ridgely. Terry, did you stay through the credits of this movie? I think so. I don't I think you did. I didn't even stay through the credits through? of Endgame because I knew there wasn't anything after it. Um, it's funny because in the commentary track, Paul Thomas Anderson talks about how Robert Ridgely... He knew Robert Ridgely from a very early age. Um, he says that his dad met Robert Ridgely in a cult. And uh, Robert Ridgely came over to his house and told him stories about um, like the messed up sexual relationship between Winnie the Pooh and Eeyore. Like, really messed up things. It really makes you kind of wonder about Paul Thomas Anderson, like, as a kid. The fact that he would have made, at 17 years old, a movie about a porn star. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. <laughs> I think one of the more fascinating things about Paul Thomas Anderson is, you know, he makes these, these quirky movies and he's married or is dating i don't know if he still is maya rudolph yeah i've always been struck it's his by that significant too. other that that's such an 
odd combination. Well, I remember Mark Maron said one time, like, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson makes all these, like, weird movies, but, like, you just realize he's just this goofball from the valley. Like, I mean, he, he's a he's a weird guy. <laughs> he's he's not as, like, I don't know. Well, he's, he... he... He talks extensively about that in, in his commentary. Um, and he's every bit as self-absorbed as you would imagine him to be. He's um, obsessed with Adam Sandler. I know that. Yeah. He talks about how, like, you know, Howard Hawks and, like, you know, George Cukor and these other great directors. I mean, they had, like, you know, great experiences in their life. Like, John Ford went off to war and that inspired him. And his his biggest inspiration was, like, living in the valley. And that became his trait. And that's subtly one thing that I, I haven't loved about Paul Thomas Anderson's career trajectory. I wish he would make more movies that were set in the valley because you know his first four films were awesome and then he kind of sort of abandoned that theme completely i don't know i feel like they've almost gotten better though as he's gone along like phantom thread and there will be blood are are like masterpieces but like his early movies i mean they're definitely stylized they're definitely early they're definitely 90s movies but i don't know are those two movies masterpieces because they're paul thomas anderson films or because they're daniel day lewis films i don't know i mean I guess I mean you could say what you want. I guess I. <laughs> I think that combination is hard to top at this point. Yeah, it's a valid way to look at it. So, so we kind of I started to kind of address this, but I want to hear both of your opinions. What what is the biggest flaw of this movie? I really think it's it's Eddie's mom. I, I think we needed more of her character. I think if they expanded her her role, I mean, the movie could have been like a, a TV miniseries or like vinyl or something like that. If they would have, if it came out now, I, I I think it would have been fascinating to see a lot of these characters expanded. It would have been cool to see more of like Roller Girl's backstory and more of Buck and stuff like that. I I don't know. I mean, because a lot of these characters just sort of come in and they go, but I mean, I think it it needed more expansion, especially with with Dirk's mom, because that that doesn't really seem like it fits at this point. Yeah, I I agree. Giving some more backstory to some of these characters would have definitely improved it. Because like I said at the beginning, I feel like this film is... it's, It's telling the story of these characters through the conduit of the 70s porn industry... And yet, the only one we know anything about before, like, the pool scene is Dirk Diggler. That's the only one we have any backstory to. So, um, give us a little bit of backstory. Well, I guess, I guess Buck, we, we get that scene in the record store, too. But uh, give us a little bit of backstory, and you can, uh, and we really will understand these characters more. Yeah, so so along those same lines, you know, watching the movie this time, and I've seen it, I would guess, probably about six or seven times, um, I noticed a scene that really kind of, for me, manifested my problem with this movie. And that is the parallel cuts between um, Buck getting denied the loan at the bank, Amber and Roller Girl declaring their kind of mother-daughter love for each other, and uh, Reed and uh, Dirk getting turned down at the record at the at the at the studio, and for me that kind of crystallizes the flaw in this movie, which is that on the one hand, you have Amber and Roller Girl who are deeply traumatic 
uh, broken characters. You know, they come from these horrible backgrounds and they're, they're abused and they're victimized throughout the movie. And you even have Buck. And in spite of his flaws, as I pointed out earlier, you know, this is a sad scene where we can see the consequences of his involvement in the porn industry. And these are tragic storylines that are really kind of compelling and interesting. And what does Paul Anderson, Paul Thomas Anderson do? He contrasts it with this ridiculous scene of <laughs> Dirk and Reed not being able to get their record done because they can't put the money forward. I mean, come on, that's just not a fair comparison, okay? Like, these are really compelling, sad storylines, and you're going to say that that's the same level as Reed and Dirk not getting their record done because they're, you know, this terrible record of You Got the Touch? Like, to me, that crystallizes all the problems with this movie, which is that Dirk Diggler is not the most interesting character in this movie. Amber Waves and Roller Girl and Buck are the most interesting characters in this movie. This movie needed to be about them and less about Dirk. Except that, that Buck apparently didn't belong in the movie, uh, according to Zach. But the movie is all about Dirk. Why? So, like, and Dirk is, I mean, his problems are so stupid compared to, like, you know, Amber Waves fighting for the custody of her son and Roller Girl trying to complete high school in spite of these assholes who are abusive toward her. You know, like, these are real problems. Dirk's problems are stupid and insignificant compared to the real world problems of these other characters. Oh, and come I on, wish- Dirk couldn't get it up for 20 bucks, man. I mean, that's a real problem. (laughs) I just think that Amber Waves and Roller Girl and Buck are very interesting characters, and I wish Paul Thomas Anderson had made a movie about them instead of Dirk Diggler. That's all I'm saying. That's the flaw in the movie. Those three are much more interesting than Dirk. Well, I think we're all kind of talking about the same thing, is this movie turns into the Dirk Diggler story when it was... could have been so much more effective so much more interesting exactly being a story of all of these characters since you come to appreciate and understand and and love all of these characters throughout the movie exactly i want to see the scotty j backstory i don't know what what the hell happened with that guy i I think he just kind of fell out of the sky and was who he was he's just (laughs) one of those characters it's like this guy has no backstory he just appears I love how he he like opens the door for him to go down the stairs and then he tries to beat him down the stairs in order to open the door for him again. It's just a genius scene. Okay, so how about some random thoughts? Do you got random thoughts out there that don't fit in any category? Hmm. I have a few. Go for it, Zach. All right, so a couple random thoughts that I had in my head. So Reed is apparently this great magician, and uh, he's he's an amateur. Does anybody ma- <laughs> actually believe anything that Reed says? <laughs> I I love his amateur magician career. Why didn't Paul Thomas Anderson set him up in a scene with Ricky Jay, who's one of the great magicians of all time? I mean, it's a lost opportunity to me. And uh, Paul, actually, there is a deleted scene where where Reed does do some magic for Ricky Jay, but it, it didn't make the final cut. But I'm just saying that that would have made um, a, a really good scene. Okay, a couple other random points. Um, 
I think it's really interesting in Jack's house that he has that wall that is full of like aeronautical, like, or not, excuse me, like nautical equipment. He's got that big like steering wheel from the boat and he's got like busts of like sailors. Do you know what I'm talking about? I can't picture it now. <laughs> okay, it, it's the scene where, where they're starting to do a lot of drugs, and it's when Dirk's competition has, like, entered the scene. Anyway, it's just this really interesting shot of, like, this big steering wheel on the wall. I'm really intrigued by that. You know, it makes me think that, like, Jack Horner is into, like, boating, and the movie never really talks about that. And then the last point... Um, Dirk, by the end of the movie, is apparently broke. He's on his last limb. He is desperate for money. He's desperate to sell drugs to Rahad Jackson. And yet, he still has his car. Why has he not sold his car? Like, that would be a, a, a nice way of maybe making some extra cash. But Yeah, I thought about that too. Yeah, he's got this super sweet car. But they need more money. Sell the car, bro. Apparently, you're not paying for gas because you're on empty. Yeah. And then it gets shot up. Okay. Um, uh, one random thought that I noticed as I was watching the movie. How many extended long tracking shots in one take does Paul Thomas Anderson do in this movie? A lot. It seems like every ten minutes there's like a two to three minute scene that's a one take tracking shot. Yeah, he, he wanted to uh, make a Scorsese movie seems like yeah yeah he's in love with himself and he's in love with these characters and this movie is like one of the most pretentious movies ever made do, do we think that rayhad was gay like is that is cosmo <laughs> yes. cosmo the, yes. the chinese guy's lover who Absolutely. just is firing off firecrackers like he serves no purpose in this movie <laughs> other than to just like make everyone think he's shooting off guns like i feel like that's sort of me in this podcast a lot of the time like i serve no purpose <laughs> talking but i'm just <laughs> sort of the, <laughs> sort of the guy firing off firecrackers <laughs> that's cosmo he's chinese yeah <laughs> that's the explanation <laughs> he's chinese uh... Apparently, the, the first draft of this screenplay was 300 pages. Yikes. Like, that's, that's insane. That's what I mean. Like, Paul Thomas Anderson is in love with himself, and he's in love with this movie. He is, he is so self-absorbed in this movie, and it, and, and it shows. It is like film school on display in this movie. It's like, dude, settle down, okay? You're 27 years old. You want to be the greatest filmmaker who ever lived. You want to be the Orson Welles of the 90s. I get it. Just settle down a little bit and sit down and shut up. Just a little bit, okay? Well, uh, are we ready to move into some trivia? Let's do it. I, I've got a, I've got a trivia game here for the two of you. Okay, so we're going to do this kind of like we did uh, our uh, Apollo 13 trivia where uh, I have some questions I'll ask one of you while the other one is is uh, not listening. And then we'll bring uh, bring them back and, and go from there. So uh, we're going to go with Todd first. So, uh, so Zach, why don't you, uh, why don't you unplug, and we'll give you a thumbs up when it's time to come back. Okay. Okay. All right, you ready, Todd? Sure. I have, I have 11 questions. Oh, boy. And, uh, it w with a total of one, two. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, 
15 points available. All right. Okay. So my first question, which uh, is going to uh, potentially look at uh, restructuring our next Deep Dive podcast, how many of my quiz questions were spoiled by our discussion? (laughs) (laughs) Of my 11 quiz questions, and I'm still going to ask them, how many of my 11 Uh, questions were spoiled by our discussion? I'm going to say four and a half. That is incorrect. The answer is six. (laughs) Six. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, that one I had to add in halfway through because I'm like, this is ridiculous. Okay. This is what I did with uh, Apollo 13. I crossed out like four questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm going to ask him anyways. One of them I, I changed up a little bit. Okay. Next question. How many Oscar nominees appear in this film? Oscar nominees? Oscar nominated actors appear in the film. Uh, I'm going to say five. That is incorrect. Uh, it is seven. Seven. Burt Reynolds, Julianne Moore, Mark Wahlberg, John C. Riley, Don Cheadle, William H. Macy, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Wow, I forgot about William H. Macy. Okay. Uh, next question. The first scene takes place when and where, according to the opening banner? 1977, San Fernando Valley. That is true. That's two points. Um, what is Dirk Diggler's full real name? Eddie Adams. Uh, where is Eddie Adams from? Where is he from? Yep. Uh... Like the city? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't know. San Francisco? Torrance. Torrance. He's from Torrance. Okay. Uh, this next one's worth three points. What three actors appear on posters in Eddie's room? Uh, Bruce Lee, uh, Al Pacino, and uh, I don't know, Robert Redford? It's incorrect. Farrah Fawcett. Ah, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Alright, next question. What is the name of the modification to the stereo system Buck is trying to sell? TK421. (laughs) TK421. Alright, this one's worth two points. How much do Dirk and Reed squat? Uh, Dirk squats 200, or he says two. And uh, Reed says uh, 350. I'm sorry, what? Sorry, what? Oh, oh, 350. It looked like a killer margarita he was making, too. Two, four, whatever. <laughs> Next question. What do people say Reed, or who do people say Reed Rothschild looks like? Uh, Han Solo. Han Solo. Uh, Next question. What is the name of the first Brock Landers movie? Oh, Angels Live in My Town. Angels Live in My Town. Oh. And the final question. The seed with Rahad Jackson, played by Alfred Molina, starts with him famously belting out Sister Christian. Uh, when the mi- mixtape switches to side B, what is the next song we hear? Oh, it's Jesse's Girl. Perfect. I always thought okay. that was the better part of the scene. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, so you have, uh, you have, uh, all right, you got 11 of the 15. Zach, come on okay. back. All right, Lynn, all right, Nick, let's go. Ready, okay, man. all right, let's so do this. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to tell you how Todd did. Uh, I, I have bet he 11, did really well. I have 11 questions that are worth oh, a total of 15 points. Oh, my God, all right. Okay, <laughs> first what I question. <laughs> Jesus, man. First question. How many of my quiz questions were spoiled by our discussion? How many of your quiz questions were spoiled? Yeah. You kept track? I did. <laughs> uh, eight. That's incorrect. It was six. It was six oh. of, uh, of the ten, not including that question. Okay. okay. Next question. How many Oscar-nominated actors appeared in this film? Ooh. Uh, well, we got Marky Mark, uh, Julianne Moore. We got John C. Riley. We got Burt Reynolds. We got... Uh, six. Seven. It is seven. Uh, Burt Reynolds, <laughs> I Julianne got to Moore, five and then stopped. You got to four and then stopped, and you still said John a better C. number Riley, than I did. <laughs> Don Cheadle, Don William Don H. Cheadle. Macy. Okay, well, yeah, yeah. Bill Philip Macy. Seymour Hoffman. Okay. Okay, next question. This is worth two points. Okay. Uh, the first scene takes place when and where, according to the opening banner? Uh, San Fernando Valley, 1977. That is correct, and two points. Uh, next question. What is Dirk Diggler's full real name? Eddie Adams. From Torrance. That is correct. And that is the next question. Where's Eddie Adams from? Torrance. Yeah, there you go. It's a, it's a long bus ride, man. I've been there. It's long. You got to drive through like those mountains. You got to go on the five. You got to go over the hills, man. That's a long <laughs> ride. I, I noticed that in the movie. I wanted to bring that up, actually. All right. Next question is worth three points. What three actors appear on posters in Eddie's room? Ooh. Uh, well, Al Pacino, as we talked about. Uh, Bruce Lee. Yep. Fair Fawcett. Correct. Yeah, that's right, bitch. I actually had to change that question. My original question was, "What was the one movie poster Eddie has on his wall?" But you guys spoiled that hardcore. Yeah. No uh, next question. That was question. one of your questions. I got spoiled. Yeah. Next question. What is the name of the modification to the stereo system Buck is trying to sell? TK four two one. TK four two one. Uh. How much do Dirk and Reed squat? Worth two points. Oh, my God. Oh, Jesus. Um, uh, Dirk squats 250. And, and uh, Reed squats 350. Dirk squats two hundred. Reed ah, squats three fifty. So okay. you get one point. one point. He actually he actually says two. He yeah, says I, two. I got that right. Yeah, he got I that right. Got and then another we, half point for that shit. We like quoted the entire scene. Um, <laughs> Told you that was my favorite talked, scene. <laughs> talked about how good scene. that margarita looked. Um, <laughs> it does right. look good. I agree. <laughs> good call, next, Todd. <laughs> next question: Who do people say Reed Rothschild looks like? Oh, Han Solo. You already mentioned yep. that. Hand. Uh, what is in what is the name of the first Brock Landers movie? Angels Live in My Town. Alright, and the last question. The scene with Rahad Jackson, played by Alfred Molina, starts with him famously belting out Sister Christian. When the mixtape switches to the B side, what is the next song we hear? 
Oh, Jesse's girl. There we oh, go, Ricky Zach. Springfield, the body. How the body. All right. So with a score of 12 to 11, wow. Zach wins. Oh, yeah. And I, <laughs> I don't even like I didn't this get Farrah Fawcett, damn it. <laughs> yeah, he missed Farrah Fawcett, and he, did, and he forgot about Torrance. Yeah. Eddie from Torrance. Come on. All right. So, yeah, so Zach, Zach wins. So, I mean, we haven't done it in the past, but you can you can pick a movie for Todd to watch. If oh, you I want definitely to, will. Well, he podcast. already has that, like, from the last podcast that he hasn't said anything yet. Oh, um, yeah. No, no, I'm no, watching I, something. I, I signed something to Terry. Yeah, yeah oh, I'm watching something for the next one. Dear Zachary, one of my yeah. top ten movies oh. of all time. Don't research that movie at all. Don't read I haven't, anything I haven't about done it. anything for Good. it yet. Good. Keep it that way. Okay. Well, let's wrap up the podcast with a quote of the day. I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna start us off here with a quote from uh, from Boogie Nights that uh, that I think I think sums up this podcast nicely. Uh, Dirk Diggler is saying, uh, "What can you expect when you're on top? You know, it's like Napoleon." Damn when he was Terry. the king, you know, people are just constantly trying to conquer him, you know, in the Roman Empire. So it's history repeating itself all over again. I've quoted yeah. that on this podcast before. <laughs> <laughs> I have, and you were like, yes, he is definitely the Napoleon of porn. I remember you saying that after I said that. I don't remember what I was quoting it in reference to, but... I think this is so funny because, Terry, I knew you were going to say that quote. <laughs> I had that as my quote. I knew you were going to say that so much that I actually have a backup quote. Yeah. <laughs> well, then, Zach, you won trivia. Go with your backup quote. Okay, my backup quote, because you stole my quote, was a poem by Reed Rothschild. Damn it! That was mine! It's a perfect I love poem. you. You love me. Going down the sugar tree. We'll go down the sugar tree and see lots of bees playing, playing, but the bees won't sting because you love me. And that's it. And that describes this podcast. It's a great, it's a great poem. All right, All right Todd, I don't know if you have anything left, but uh, if you do, go for it. Well, I, I'll just go with this exchange that, that is uh, just brilliant between uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Mark Wahlberg, and that is, like, uh... Uh, Dirk says, nice to meet you, and Scotty J says, me too. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> that is exactly how that character would have responded in that. <laughs> me too. <laughs> like, he wasn't listening, but yeah, me too. I thought you were going to say the ass in her cock, Todd. That's well, a great I mean, line. We, we've quoted that three times already. Now okay. four. <laughs> uh, I should have kept track of that. Put that in the quiz. But yeah, uh, the poem, that was the best quote in the thing. It, it was. Read, read Rothschild, <laughs> MVP. And, and and with that, uh, we bring our podcast to a close. Thank you so much uh, for listening to uh, to us just oh my reminisce God. about I, I have an to amazing work movie. Tomorrow. It's a Wednesday night, man. <laughs> this sucks. Yeah, yeah, you're two hours ahead of us. That, that, that's too Yeah, bad. that's going to be fun. Don't make All me right. chase well, you, Raphael. thanks so much for listening uh find us on itunes subscribe rate review we'll be back in a couple weeks with a more traditional podcast until then have fun watching movies we'll see you later you got rocking and rolling despite your crass behavior i'm glad we were able to do this together